Hello and welcome to Kernel of Truth, the podcast about everything infrastructure. I'm Rupa. And I'm Rama. On today's episode, we'll be talking to Thomas Kernan about networking in the infrastructure for the media and entertainment business. Thanks again for joining this episode, Thomas. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thomas is an architect, a guru in this area, and we are hoping that we can, in this conversation, we can talk to him about history, evolutions, current challenges, future of uh, technology in um, in media and entertainment. And I will let him introduce himself because he has a lot of talent and a lot he covers a lot of areas and is expert in a lot of uh, areas of infrastructure. Thomas. I started quite some time ago. Uh, I've actually been very interested in, in the world of media and entertainment uh, since uh, since early on. Uh, I've been involved in uh, the networking industry for well over 25 plus years, uh, during which I built a number of uh, infrastructures related to um to IPTV uh, back in the early 2000s over fiber to the home networks when those were emerging. Um, after doing the more of the distribution side of things, I moved to what we call contribution, which are the feeds that come from stadiums, for example, live venues, um, all the way into the latest part that is converged towards IP, which is the uh, production, uh, including the live production which has been the latest uh, the latest trend in that industry for, uh, I would say, yeah, eight, eight years roughly, during which uh, I've been heavily involved in standardization. Um, the SMPT, the Society of Motion Pictures and Television Engineers, a bit of a mouthful, um, for which I'm a, I've now a, reached a fellow status. And uh, since I've combined a number of uh, fun areas to work on, uh, a lot of this is multicast heavy, and I've been working uh, from the days of the M-Bone with multicast, um, combined with other esoteric uh, protocols and transports such as IPv6 and Wi-Fi. And I've actually even gone as far as building IPTV services over V6 multicast over Wi-Fi, just to try and mash everything together. So that's uh, that's part of uh, the different areas I've covered. And last but not least, I've also recently been involved uh, related to uh, timing, uh, not only for uh, media and entertainment, which we'll talk about in a few minutes, but also in other areas such as data center by the uh, OCP project, the OCP TAP project, which has been looking at uh, improving timing in uh, in data center environments. Yeah, your contributions there are greatly appreciated, Thomas. Yeah, we sh- and we should do an entire episode on V6 multicast and Wi-Fi, by the way. Um, and of course, um, Thomas runs a production setup in his house <laughs> for experimentation um, and uh, many things he does. So Thomas, uh, since you have a view of this industry, uh, I think it'll be nice to start with um, uh, some of the background history on how these networks or this infrastructure has moved from legacy to IP networks and so on and software defined. Um, I, I think our listeners will love to hear that from you. Yeah, so it started about, I'll skip the first 70 years out of the last 100 years um, when we were in the worlds of black and white and low frame rates and uh, standard definition. But if you actually think of where the industry has gone and we've got to understand that production 
uh, is ahead of what you actually get on screen, uh, usually at home, uh, because in order to give you a high definition signal or ultra high definition signal uh, into your home, we need to produce that content in those resolutions. So there is a, a pathway that is uh, that starts much earlier on on the production side. And just to give you an idea, uh, the first experiments to build high definition uh, actually occurred in the early 70s. So if we look at the uh, the transition, say, from standard def to high def, most people uh, will think of that happening around the late 90s uh, towards high definition. But uh, what actually happened in the background that people are not aware of is we moved, obviously, from analog to digital. And there's a, a very well and uh, defined interface in media called SDI, which is a serial digital interface. Uh, which has been used to carry uh, digital video in production environments uh, for the last uh, 30 plus years. And one of the big trends was how do we move from this SDI infrastructure, which actually encompasses all layers, um, I, the layer one to layer seven, should we want to map that to an OSI model, uh, to IP. And that started off with a transition saying, hey, let's uh, encapsulate SDI and IP as a first, um, a first effort. And then afterwards, once we realized that we could do that, but it was suboptimal because there was a lot of uh, waste in the in the actual payload, uh, it was to say, well, how do we actually now take those different flows that are encapsulated in SDI, which encompass not only video, which everyone thinks of, which is the biggest part of the bandwidth, but also multi-track audio. And here we're talking everything from a single mono to, say, 64 audio tracks and a bunch of metadata uh, related to all these streams. So that's one angle. The other angle, of course, was standard def to high def, and these days to ultra high definition, most likely 4K, um, or actually even into 8K. Um, typically, for the last 10, 15 years now, I'd say, we've been working on ultra high definition up to 8K resolution. And then there's another angle, which is uh, come more from the cinema um, movie environment, which is um, high dynamic range. How do we make uh, better, brighter pixels so that we can have uh, darker darks and brighter brights? And that means everything from changing displays to cameras and everything in the chain to allow that to work together. So once you've got high dynamic range over uh, high ultra high definition, oh, with a higher frame rate, of course, uh, you have a lot more bandwidth that is required. And that bandwidth is going to be used in a more efficient manner. So that's why we move also from SDI to IP. That's that's for the transport part. The other part would be more around how the broadcast industry has operated traditionally. Uh, a lot of the work was done behind, I would say, closed doors, meaning yet to be members of technology committees that were part of these uh, standardization bodies, it being uh, SEMTI or, or others. And those, um, those standardization bodies would release documents that were designed behind their, uh, behind their um, paywall and then would be used by the industry as a whole. The trends, of course, have started to move now that we're in an IP environment and that we're building on top of a more open IETF uh, model, for example. Um, so we're dis disaggregating uh, from this um, full stack SDI model to different layers. And we're taking that towards an approach of having 
models that exist that are being leveraged for APIs, for example, or for virtualization of the uh, of the flows and of the infrastructure. But this is a this is a hard transition for this industry. We need to understand that a broadcast engineer was typically used to tracing uh, flows on a scope and checking uh, if cables were the right length and if there was any compensation that needed to be done. And then suddenly you've got to bring them to the forefront of uh, packet paste IP transports over tens of gigabits uh, with architectures which they'd never heard of before. So it is a uh, it is quite a, quite a change of uh, of rhythm for them, uh, but it's happening. And there are many examples that exist of production facilities that have moved to this type of infrastructure, and also with live events. Uh, the latest being, of course, uh, the uh, delayed Olympics, uh, which were largely produced over IP and transported backhauled over IP to the different. Uh, uh, rights holders who acquired the rights in order to distribute it in their own countries. And another example is we've been able to create remote production facilities where a lot of the editors who are working on this content are now sitting back at home and don't need to be flown around the world. Obviously, you still need cameramen behind the cameras um, and a certain number of people on site. But uh, the bulk of the people that were working on doing the production uh, could actually be sitting at home working off uh, proxy copies, i.e. lower resolution copies, in order to do their editing and creating the content that is being distributed. So a bit of a long explanation for the 10,000-foot view, uh, but I hopefully that gives you an idea of where the industry came from and where it's heading to. Thanks for that, Thomas. And for our listeners, SMT is Society of Motion Picture and Television Engineers. And Thomas, you're saying that is the body that uh, is responsible for advancements in this area, correct? It's the main. It's the main body. It's the historical body that's been around for over 100 years, from the days when uh, we had uh, film and different uh, perforations on the side of the actual film. And that would actually not be compatible between different manufacturers of the very early cameras and film stock. And that's when uh, that adventure started. And then it evolved into television and so on and so forth. So SEMTI has historically been the, the main body for the uh, standards in the production space. Uh, there are other bodies for the distribution of the content. And then if you're talking about video compression, you've got other organizations such as uh, ISO and uh, MPEG uh, that work on the actual uh, transport of the compressed video. Got it. Yeah, Thomas, that was really wonderful introduction. I have a little bit of a tactical question, if uh, that's all right. Uh, to start off, you said that there's been a transition from SDI to IP, and then you also described that the vast majority of current modern broadcast is on IP. Can you just uh, spend a little bit and just explain how, and pardon my language, I don't know the industry vernacular well, but uh, how close to the lens is the IP packet generated? Uh, are we talking about the cameras themselves now? Um, because they're all digital, obviously, with you know CMOS or some form of transistor in there to capture the images. Are they outputting IP directly from the camera? And then at that point, all the um, oversight within the digital uh, transmission is occurred? Or does that occur somewhere else in the flow? So that's a great question. Uh, like everything, it came through a certain number of uh, stages. 
So first of all, we took the SDI output of the camera. So that's the raw uncompressed video. And to give you an idea for an HD uh, picture, uh, we're talking about uh, three gigabits per second per flow. So for every single camera source, you would have a three gig flow uh, roughly. And originally that would have been the SDI encapsulated into IP. Then it was decided that we would want to move it to the native um, IP flow. And in that case, uh, we also decided that maybe in the very first instance, it was not possible to do that transformation directly on the camera. So what, lot of, what you had a lot of were gateways, taking SDI in and then IP out. Today, we now have cameras that have native um, ethernet connections into either the camera or what we call the CCU, which is the control unit, camera control unit, uh, which is let's say the first hop in, uh, in that network. Awesome. And last little bit of technical question. What is the normal uh, port speed that we see on these production grade IP cameras in these broadcasting environments? So if you're doing a HD, uh, you would have therefore uncompressed would be three gigs per second. So you'd see a 10 gig interface. And as we moved to uh, ultra high definition 4K, the payload is just just around 10 gigs, but many of the manufacturers are now putting 25 gig interfaces on there. So 25 G is going to be the norm for the endpoint on the um, source end, because obviously one camera is just going to output uh, the content that it's captured on its given lens. If you're on a device that is deeper into the network, which is doing uh, video um, overlay, for example, for graphics, or you're doing slow motion for replays, like, yeah, I don't know, a, a goal during soccer. Um, these devices uh, may be capturing multiple inputs, outputs. So there we're moving to from either 25 gigs or 100 gigs is the, is the way we're going. Right now, we're not seeing endpoints that have high interfaces than 100G. That's awesome. Thanks for that. I always like to uh, you know, take the 1,000-foot view and con uh, condense it into something that's very tactical <laughs> and tactile so we can really understand on a day-to-day. -day. Uh, so p pivoting the conversation a little bit, uh, we all work for NVIDIA, um, and we all know that NVIDIA's got a strong presence in the film and television industry, whether that's through uh, you know, professional visualization um, or uh, using AI to help uh, you know, pre-render frames or filling gaps, et cetera. Uh, can you give us an overview of what is NVIDIA's presence within film and television as you know it? So yes, obviously NVIDIA has been at the forefront of film and television, um, I would say forever. Um, and the GPU, of course, has been at the uh, at the center of this. We have many different initiatives that are being uh, driven out of mostly the ProVis uh, group. Um, one of the, I would say, um, most famous ones is around vid um, sorry virtual production sets. And one can think of shows such as The Mandalorian. Uh, where the entire production is built out of LED walls. So we've replaced the green screen technology with LED walls, and they're actually having the, uh, uh, the background that is being displayed, and cameras are being coordinated to compensate for any um, angle issues related to where the, it's being shot, 
what angle it has on the LED wall. So there's a lot of uh, real-time post-processing and AI that goes into that. So that's one area. Uh, more traditionally, we also have video transcoding, of course, with the GPUs themselves. So there we're going to take any encode into any encode out, depending on resolutions, frame rates, and, and density. Uh, we also have, I mentioned before, uh, graphic overlays, uh, everything from you know the, 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 the sports results or ticker during a game or ticker during, I don't know, a... Uh, uh, a news channel or anything like that that would be overlaid. Uh, but those video effects are also much more advanced in terms of um, shows where you have, uh, you know, virtual anonymous guests, which are actually overlaid. Uh, and you've got a lot of AI that goes into that. So there's all sorts of um, sorts of video effects that are being done in real time, of course. On the film side, um, things are not obviously shot uh, live, although they can be recorded live or as if it was live. Uh, there's a lot of post-processing that goes on in terms of creation of graphics. And in that space, of course, we, uh, we have a lot of rendering that goes on for, uh, for those shows. Um, you know, many of the modern movies are, are using these techniques, uh, not all of them. Uh, some uh, directors of photography still want to go to uh, more traditional environments, but obviously many of them are, are using this. So there's a, there's a wide range uh, that NVIDIA is contributing to in both film and television. That's great, Thomas. Let's get uh, dig deeper into the technology pyramid for media nodes. Um, and if you can follow up with uh, what is the data plane and control plane separation and so on, that'll be great. Sure. So um, as this industry was evolving from fixing the transport itself, so the SDI uh, to IP, and again, um, those new specifications for the de-aggregated model is uh, built on a number of specs from SEMT um, around what we call the 2110 system. So that's just the name of a, a suite of standards. And that sits at the top of the uh, the top of the list is, you know, uh, the forefront of everybody's mind in terms of, well, first we need to get the essence right, i.e. the media, uh, before anything else. But one of the main things that exists in, in the media space is that we actually run these flows real time and there is no uh, delay possible in live. And one needs to understand it's not only just about producing live, it's also about, you know, you've got camera feeds that are being returned to trucks. You've got interview environments where the person at the other end uh, shouldn't be delayed too much in, in, in the live situation. Uh, and then there are other areas where actually um, systems such as uh, the betting industry, uh, which is betting real time on sports, want the lowest possible latency on their feeds in order to be able to do real-time betting. Uh, I'm just taking, you know, different cases so people understand why we need low latency in these environments. But to get that low latency, we need tight, we need to couple that tightly with packet pacing to make sure that we have no buffering at any point in time in the system. And that requires us to use uh, PTP, so the IEEE 1588 Precision Time Protocol, in order to not only uh, code time all the sources, because we need to be able to have microphones and cameras that are code time so we can actually build uh, a coherent representation of audio and video, even more so if you've got multiple 
microphones that are capturing a large area and you need to build a, a decent sound field. Uh, all these elements need to be uh, need to be co-timed. Uh, and then the other side, of course, is a synchronization. Uh, we want to make sure that when you are going to cut between two different video sources, that you don't do a tear in the middle of a uh, of a picture. You want to do that at the end of a video frame. And there's a bit of a blanking interval at the end of the video frame, which for historic, historical reasons is from the days when your CRT device, uh, the uh, beam that reached the bottom of the screen had to go all the way back up to the top of the screen to start um, beaming the next picture. So that blanking interval is actually when you transmit or when you cut between one video frame and another. It's a bit of the history lesson. So that's why we leverage uh, PTP in order to uh, synchronize all the devices. And that synchronization uh, allows us to also pace when packets are being sent on the wire in order to make sure that we don't have any uh, buffer overflows. Beyond that, uh, the next big element is operational control. And there there is a uh, another organization called the AMWA, uh, which has a series of uh, open specifications called NMOS, Networked Media Open Specifications, which really is the, uh, I would say, the control plane of this new IP-based infrastructure. So if you think of it in this way, the data plane would be the SEMTI standards mostly, and the control plane would be the NMOS suite. And here we're talking about everything from a device that connects to the network and registers registers itself with a central registry. And once it's in there, it can then be used in order to perform different tasks like I want to source a stream or I want to receive a stream. Uh, those are you know typical operations. But then we're going to find other things like making sure there is no contention on flows because we need to be in a non-oversubscribed environment uh, because we're doing real time, because we're doing everything at scale. And by scale, that means multicast uh, because we have one source going to many receivers. You don't need just one copy. You need a copy to go to the um, monitor that is maybe at the bottom of the stage where an artist is performing. You need that same feed to go to the uh, production facility where the uh, producer is uh, controlling his crew and asking to call the shots. You need that same feed to go to a uh, archive and recording database. You need that same feed to have uh, to be fed into the graphic system to do some additional overlay. So for any given source, there are multiple copies. So the most efficient way is multicast. So that's where we need to make sure that we do not have any oversubscription. And since everything is real time, it's all UDP based because there's no time for retransmissions. There are other areas around NMOS which are more on the security side um, and uh, there are extensions that are being done, uh, added also around other bits such as uh, audio track layouts. If you suddenly have 64 audio tracks, you need to know which one is which what language, what order. If you're building a 5.1 surround mix, you need to make sure that it's laid out in a certain uh, track order, and you might have that for uh, multiple um, languages or so. So the mixes might have you know, different um, setups. That there are a lot of different combinations. Not everybody's using 64 audio tracks. You might just have a pair of mono, uh, but you need to be able to control those track layouts. 
And once you've got all that, you still need to be able to automate your configuration and your monitoring. You need to understand uh, which flow is going to where at given points in time, how well are you synchronized in terms of your overall timing, uh, how many sources do you have? So that's the regular um, you know, supervision requirements. And again, the last bit is around security. And the reason is, again, we're coming from an industry which is not a native IP, IT industry, uh, but somebody, or let's say from an industry where as long as you protected the coax that came out of the truck, where you had the SDI feed, nothing bad could, in theory, happen. Well, you might get struck by lightning, but that's a different story. Um, so security was a very different concept for them. Uh, so here there's also a big, big effort being done in terms of implementing industry best practices. I think that covers more or less the, uh, the overall um, technology pyramid in, uh, in this industry. Yeah, thanks. That was great, actually, um, with the examples. It paints a good picture. And when we talk about hardware, um, of course, you laid out that uh, multicast is an important thing in your switches and um, also in the NICs and PTP, right? Um, and packet pacing. Again, we're talking about, when we're talking about examples as NVIDIA hardware, we're talking about spectrum switches and uh, our NIC cards, which have yes. uh, packet pacing capabilities. Okay. So. Yeah, so, so that's right. So we have, we've got to look at it from two ends. First of all, we need to make sure that packet pacing is well performed. So we have that uh, as a hardware feature derived from the PTP uh, timing that is received on the end nodes so that a, uh, a sender such as a ConnectX NIC or a Bluefield DPU uh, will actually output this, the stream or multiple streams it being on bare, uh, bare metal or in a virtualized environment uh, at the exact right uh, speed. And we're not talking about one flow per interface. We're talking about multiple flows uh, filling up a 25 gig or 100 gig uh, uh, port. So that's one side of it. And then the other thing also is by reducing or by having this uh, well-paced environment, we're reducing any buffering on the receiver side. And by reducing the buffering on the receiver side, we're reducing the latency in the end-to-end -end chain. Because again, it's not an A to B, it's an A to B to C to D to E, or uh, beyond that in through the production chain at different resolutions. And again, that adds more complexity. Great. And uh, I'm guessing the usual multicast protocols, PIM and so on, are very prevalent. But uh, in working with you in the past, I've also heard about um, specialized control plane in these environments. Can you give us a little bit on what's going on there, um, whether it's OpenFlow or whether it's um, the new um, object models and so on, which I'm sure you have been contributing to a lot as well? Yeah, so that's correct. So I'll just come back one second on the multicast. So it is mostly V4 multicast at this point in time, and we find as much in layer two and layer three. Obviously, for scale reasons, uh, we're going to have, you know, typical spine leaf topology and spines are layer three and leaves are either layer two, or layer three, depending on the density and the, and the size of these infrastructures. Uh, not all uh, facilities are data, set, uh, data center scale. Some are a lot smaller. And if it's a truck, uh, it might have only a few, a few switches in there, even though there might be a hundred ports on it. So not everything is built out at a, uh, at a very wide scale. But the technologies and the designs should be as close as, 
to one as uh, possible. Uh, because we also have another um, situation, which I just want to mention before it, um, the the um, the thought uh, uh, leaves me is, when you're doing these very large productions and you're bringing multiple trucks together at a live venue to produce or co-produce events, you interconnect these trucks. So they all have to go, all the feeds from the different venue, uh, the different venues where events are being produced, such as for the Olympics, go to one centralized location. Okay. And in a traditional environment, everything was handed over to SDI uh, as sort of like the DMARC point. Now, of course, what we're looking to do is go from IP to IP between these different uh, trucks and into the International Broadcasting Center, which is the main area where all the feeds are received. So here we want to leverage uh, mostly source-specific multicast so that we can have separation in terms of uh, the actual groups that are being used and avoid having overhead with rendezvous points and uh, and having to uh, build um, uh, build trees and unnecessary infrastructure. So everything is SSM focused. And as we scale this out, of course, uh, V4 will become more of an admin issue than anything else. So, you know, trends towards V6 will, uh, will grow. Uh, there's no question about that. So I just wanted to bring that in before I, um, uh, before I forget about it. Perfect. Um, Thanks. Yeah. I think uh, Rama and I wanted to um, talk more about the um, manageability aspects, right? I think you touched upon it, but the control plane, um, object models, or what's happening uh, there. So the other side is uh, more control plane uh, related, it has to do with uh, the unification of uh, the control interface. So there's two different problems here is, since again, we're in a new industry and that the endpoint vendors which are driving the industry uh, because they've been building media production devices for decades uh, are not too familiar with the latest and greatest in terms of ITIP um, infrastructure capabilities. Uh, there were a lot of questions when we had the first interop events over the, you know, the course of the last decade where even though people are building the same exact product in terms of its media capabilities, the way you interfaced into it or in and out of it and you reported it in and out uh, was quite a bit of a problem. So there's been a lot of work around uh, data modeling um, and some of it has been done around Yang specifically, so Yang-based data models. Uh, a, because they share a commonality with uh, the network industry uh, and B, because in terms of what existed, there were some uh, components that could be reused. So myself, I've been actually driving an effort around PTP again for building a common data model for uh, 70 devices so that we can actually monitor um, and have the same output for all, uh, all PTP devices or PTP capabilities of devices. That's one angle. Uh, the other thing also is that uh, from a... I'll use the word loosely SDN perspective. Um, since we want to avoid any oversubscription for any of the flows, uh, a lot of work has been done using uh, some form of orchestration of the flows. Uh, and in that space, there's been a lot of open flow at uh, one period in time and just switching the flows and controlling the ports. Uh, others have been looking more at a uh, open config approach um, I would say that the dust hasn't fully settled on which approach there is because there's not been a given 
standardization within uh, within Senti per se. There's been definitions of interfaces and high layer interfaces that would actually uh, take the output from a controller towards a broadcast controller, i.e. looking at more from a business perspective and a, a media flow perspective. And the lower layers are left to the different vendors and their implementations. And so far it has worked more or less, uh, but I think there is still some work to be done in that space. So Thomas, let's go back to the hardware topology. Um, I know there are some uh, specifics to this industry and it'll be good to hear from you a little bit more on that. Sure. So. In the media production space, you got to remember uh, that if you go off air at any point in time, you're at the source of the production. So take your, you know, Super Bowl uh, event, for example. Uh, you know that if you're going to lose the picture at production, everybody downstream is not going to have a picture, including all those who have paid for uh, having their logos displayed and their commercials and so on. So it's all about keeping the eyeballs, let's be honest. So it is very much what I call a belts and braces uh, industry where you want to double up on everything. And doubling up on everything means that you actually also double up on the transport infrastructure. So what we do tend to have is we tend to actually have not one network, but two uh, disjointed networks that are being used in these environments. Every single source, or I should say every single source, maybe one step removed, is able to actually produce the exact same uh, payload on two separate interfaces, which is going to be connected to these two uh, separate um, network fabrics, usually known as the red network and the blue network. And what you do is you actually send out that UDP multicast flow uh, to both of those uh, fabrics and your receiver at the other end is actually connected again to those two fabrics on two separate interfaces and you'll do you'll issue an IGMP join for each one of those uh, two paths and you will receive the same flow across two paths and it's quite simple all we do is we look at RTP uh, sequence uh, numbers and if you've already received that sequence number within a uh, period of time, because obviously the sequence number wraps, then you just drop the dupes. So technically, now we're thinking of this from a dual path, but nothing prevents you from having triple path or quadruple path or anything else, since all you're doing is you're dropping your dupes. And that's the main way that the broadcast industry operates in terms of uh, building redundancy. And that's within a production facility. But again, if I'm producing the Olympics in Tokyo and I need to bring my flows back to uh, LA, for example, or New York or anywhere else, um, in the same way where you normally have two transatlantic routes or transpacific routes to transport your, your, in, your, um, your payloads, you'll do the exact same thing. So you'll have, you know, a, a red path and a blue path, for example. So you can replicate that at, at given uh, stages in the, uh, in the production, uh, contribution and distribution environment uh, to a certain extent. Obviously, at the end, uh, the end user has one device uh, receiving one flow, but everything upstream from that can be uh, duplicated to a large extent. Thomas, that was really cool. Uh, I got a question about that. Um, 
when we talk about multi-paths, specifically through independent um, devices and independent geographic directions, uh, how do we account for, say, changes in latency from the micro, like port-to-port -port latency on the specific vendor hardware you pick, versus the macro, where it could take different paths around the world, and uh, you know you're limited by the speed of light, so traffic comes in at different timings. We have the RTP uh, sequence numbers embedded in the packet, but you can't control for the actual timing that the packets come in. How does how do we this dual or triple hardware redundant topology accommodate for the changing latencies um, across those two disparate and unique independent environments? So when you're doing that at the production end, it's a little easier because you, in theory, have full control over the um, switching fabric that you have deployed. So you're able to make sure that you minimize any overhead in terms of uh, paths, latencies, and everything else. And also remember that at some point in time, the picture that you'll have produced, say the, the original feed uh, at the production truck, then that goes out as what we will call, for example, the clean feed. And that clean feed now, if you want, is your new source. So if you're on stage one, if I take the stadium, I have, let's say, 24 camera positions around the stadium. I'm using those to produce my content in my truck. Um, I have all the graphics overlay. I've got my audio engineer that's mixing all the audio. And at the output of that truck, I have a bunch of different feeds, including um, you know, my main feed, which will then become, if you want, the new source for something that's going to be downstream. I'll have a number of other feeds, which will include like uh, no additional graphics or nothing that is tailored for a given market. And then the next one uh, downstream, for example, we'll take, I don't know, NBC. Uh, they will actually go and add the NBC overlay on top of that with the NBC graphics, and they will insert the NB NBC uh, commentators, and they will be making their, their own production, most likely off a non-compressed or uncompressed video because you want to preserve all the pixel integrity to not degrade the source production. And further down, you will then go and you know compress it for distribution to the to the end nodes. So if you want, it's it's like you've got these distinct network blocks. So the production itself is the one that needs or has the tightest requirements in terms of the uh, production latency. Then the next stage down, obviously you can't compensate for you know two different physical paths and the and the uh, the latency that'll be introduced in there. So there will be some form of buffering in one way or another. But all these infrastructures are usually not built on the fly. Uh, they are pre-planned and uh, they compensate where they can. So I might have just a red path, which is always going to be the fastest one, and. I will have a, a blue path, which will be there as my backup in that case, as, and I will switch between one and the other if I know there is too much latency between the two. Uh, so it depends. There are different devices that then will go and compensate. So I, I can't give you a one-size-fits-all on that, uh, but it's, uh, it's usually uh, using one of those mechanisms. That was wonderful, Thomas. Um, just to wrap things up here, we always like to ask, uh, you know, to be a little bit of a soothsayer and tell us how, what you believe for the future of your industry. So what new tech trends should we be watching for 
in the media and entertainment uh, industry, whether that's around standardization, around the um, you know governing bodies, or if there's new technology coming up from interesting new startups or uh, new technology breakthroughs, what can we expect over the next two to five years uh, in the M&E industry? So that's like an episode on its own, just talking about what's on the on the horizon. Um, but if I just to distill a couple of uh, points, first of all, we always have a race to uh, in compression. So there's always work being done on on new codecs to reduce the use of bandwidth for the same perceived quality, picture quality that is. And that's been the case for the last uh, you know 25 year, well more than 25 years. Uh, since the days of MPEG-1 and MPEG-2 and what many people call MPEG-4 or H.264 and then H.265, um, HCVC, and now we've got uh, newer codecs, um, NLVC and others. Uh, so there's a new, a whole new soup of, of codec compression that's out there. Um, that's one area. Um, the other area, I would say, still has to do with uh, better pixels. I think the, the work for bringing a high dynamic range uh, to the end user is still ongoing and there's also been a lot of challenges around production and I think that's less of a fad than say uh, when we had 3D which lasted a few years and then we figured out that not everything was going to be in 3D. Um, obviously technology has to be tested and markets have to be tested. So that's uh, that's an area where I think we will still see some more, uh, some more work now that displays provide us uh, much better um, brightness capabilities. Um, a third area I think is going to be more around consolidation. I think the industry still really, really, really needs to get uh, its act together in terms of become native IP and not just IP as, a, as an afterthought or as a way of adding the existing capabilities or taking the existing capabilities and plugging them over IP. But it needs to become IP centric, i.e. I think that the way essence is being designed so then can be cut up uh, not for traditional CPU or even FPGA uh, based operations, but for um, how, uh, how a GPU and a NIC work together, much tightly coupled. Uh, there, I think there's gonna be a big trend of evolution. So we can do additional uh, offloads uh, bypassing the CPU as much as possible so that we copy packets from the NIC directly into the GPU, reduce the processing overhead. Uh, and there's some work, of course, that NVIDIA is doing in that space. Um, and we're seeing, uh, we're seeing extremely good results, uh, both uh, internally and with uh, ecosystem partners. Thomas, thanks a lot for joining us today. And we learned a lot, and I'm sure our listeners do, and we'll hopefully have you back again here. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Kernel of Truth. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast if you haven't already, so you're notified when the next episode is posted.